Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this month's Deep Dive. This episode is sponsored by Pearson Ravitz Insurance. One of the top financial items on your residency to-do list is to get set up with disability and life insurance early. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to pick an agent that knows what they are doing, an agent you can trust. Disability insurance is very complicated, and each and every one of you listening right now has different factors that need to be considered when you get ready to purchase this medical history, career plans, access to things like guaranteed standard issue policies, and all sorts of other factors, you must have an agent that knows what they are doing. You don't want to be talking to some agent that is captive to only one insurance company and looks past and ignores the weaknesses in their own policy. You don't want an agent who misses critical questions that they need to ask you about, and all of a sudden you can't be insured anymore. Who you talk to matters. Go to www.pearsonravits.com, get in touch, and let them coach you so you can make the best disability and life insurance choice for you. Now, back to our deep dive. This might be controversial. I anticipate that some of you will find this controversial. But in um, this episode, we are going to talk about the opiate epidemic, opiate use disorder. And specifically, we're going to be talking a lot about buprenorphine, naloxone, brand name Suboxone. But before we even get to that point, the most important thing that you need to understand as a med student, as a resident, is the sheer scope of this opiate epidemic that you keep hearing about. Because you might not really understand it yet. But just to be very clear, opiate overdose just overdose, none of the opiate, other opiate-related harms, but opiate overdose is the number one cause of death in adults under the age of 50. Let me say that again. Opiate overdoses right now is the number one killer of adults under the age of 50. It's not COVID. It's not cancer. It's not gun violence. It's not suicide. It's opiate overdose. It's a freaking disaster. There were, in 2021, the number I saw was over 100,000 deaths from overdose. Give an example here so you can understand these numbers. Imagine when you're getting into medical school and all the schools that you're considering applying to, all the allopathic schools and the osteopathic schools and all of that. I remember when I applied, I had this huge, big database book that I was going through. Take every single allopathic, osteopathic medical school in the United States of America, take every single med student from every single class, from every single med school, you put them all in a big room, and if you were to kill every single one of them, that's about 100,000 people, and in a similar demographic too, um, you know, adults under the age of 50. That's how bad this is, and it's not getting better. It keeps getting worse, okay? So we have, a, we have a real problem here. And to be clear, you may think that this is like a primary care problem or like a psychiatry problem. No, it is, it is very much an emergency medicine problem. And, you know, I, I think everyone has their own opinion on, on the role of physicians in causing some of, of the epidemic. I'm not even going to get into that, but it, this is right now very much an emergency medicine problem because patients who are crushing up MS cotton or whatever, uh, they, you know, and, and snorting it, they're not exactly at their doctor being like, 
Hey, Doc, I need a refill of my statin. While you're at it, what do you think about the fact that I've been crushing all of the prescriptions you've been giving me, and now I just inject fentanyl with a variety of needles? You know, it, it's like they're not going to primary care doctor. They come to us. Like, these are the – this is – if you're coming into emergency medicine, this is our demographic. These are our patients. You see it all the time. Uh, these patients are coming in for a variety of non-fatal opiate-related issues frequently. And, uh, you know, and there's a whole variety of them. Think the abscesses. Think the infections. Think some of the crime stuff and the assaults. Think of all the non-fatal overdoses that get naloxone, right? This is very much an emergency medicine problem. We are the healthcare providers that are going to be able to actually impact this. So this is on us, and the fact that it's getting worse reflects on us as a specialty. And I don't want to get too controversial, you know, but my opinion right now is we have completely botched this as the specialty of emergency medicine, and um, we need to get our shit together, okay? So let's talk about this. There's five things that I want you to take away from this episode. First, let's talk about like the current standard of care, because if you're a resident, you probably get this a little bit. If you're a med student, maybe not as much. Um, and when I say standard of care, I mean just like kind of the most common practice that I have seen, although certainly not universal, and there's a, a spectrum of how this is, this is handled. But you have all these patients that come in with a non-fatal opiate-related harm. So they overdose, but they got naloxone, or they have an abscess, or they're coming in because they're withdrawing, or because uh, they were involved in some sort of crime, or they're being trafficked, you know, all of that, okay? And so you get these patients that come in, and what we tend to do in emergency medicine, in my experience, is we fix the, the quote-unquote acute issue, which actually isn't usually life-threatening, right? Um, you know, so we, we drain the abscess or we, we give them the naloxone and they wake up and we watch them for a little bit. And we really focus all of our energy on that. And then one of two things happens. Either we consult a social worker who hands the patient a sheet of paper at the bottom of the 50 other pieces of paper that get printed out in their discharge instructions from the health record. Or we give them the sheet of paper ourselves, I guess, if we don't have a social worker. And we say, best of luck to you. Goodbye. You know, don't lick your needles, right? And then... And then in, and we send them off. And there's a variety of problems with this. One, anything that's getting printed off in discharge instructions is pretty much useless. I mean, you know that people don't read that, right? Like, I can walk out after my shift and look in the trash, and it's just full of discharge instructions. So, you know, you know that people aren't exactly reading that. Even if they did, even if you only handed them the sheet of paper for opiate-related resources, half of them are, are going to be, you'll find, um, like, detoxes or other abstinence-related programs. And one thing that has been completely established in the medical literature up to this point is that these abstinence-related treatments for opiate use disorder, they just don't work. So like Narcotics Anonymous would be like a classic example. Can you go to NA and be on Suboxone or something? Sure. They kind of pressure you to get off of it is my understanding. Um, but that would be like one example. Or, or you hear of, quote, detox, right? Like I had this really rich family that took their, their child and um, – they, they put them in a medically induced coma. Like they're on like a propofol drip or something. I don't know how it works, but they were like unconscious for a week to go through their opiate withdrawal. And then they're back in the department because, you know, they had reused. It has been repeatedly proven in the literature that abstinence-related therapy for opiate use disorder doesn't work. You can have your own opinion on whether or not like this was some sort of, you know, if, if the initial opiate use could have been prevented with some counseling or some other sort of um, psychiatric intervention or spiritual intervention. But, but with opiates, something happens to the brain. There's some sort of hijacked brain chemistry that doesn't just go away once you stop using. Like something 
happens and these patients are truly trapped. When we hand these patients this, this sheet of paper, which is the current standard of care, not only aren't they going to read it, but even if they did and they started making phone calls from the phone that they probably don't have because they sold it to get drugs, even if they did make some phone calls, half of them are to these absence-related programs, which don't work. This standard of giving patients a piece of paper and saying, best of luck to you, is completely inappropriate based off of what our, our current medical science and even emergency medicine literature has demonstrated. You're going to see attendings doing this. You're going to see residents doing this. And I'm going to say right here, don't be like them in this specific way. You don't have to do, you don't have to practice in the same way that your attending does. Like you can see it and be like, all right, I, you know, there's a variety of reasons that attendings do this, but you don't have to be the same. Um, but just giving them a piece of paper doesn't cut it. Sorry. Let's talk about absence just a little bit more. So they've done studies on this. If you send the patient down towards like a detox, and there, you know, there's going to be some variation in these numbers based off the study, but I'll just give this um, one study that I read. Over half of them, after completing opiate detox, will have relapsed within one week. 95% of them will relapse within a year. Depending on the study you look at, if you send them with that piece of paper and you don't start any other medication intervention, you just say, hey, you know, detox or whatever, you're talking somewhere between 5 and 20% of them will be dead within a year. It, it just doesn't work. Like we're not doing shit when we give them a piece of paper with some phone numbers on it. Just know in your head, you're not doing anything to treat the number one cause of death of adults in America. All right. There's just really no other way to say this. And I say this as having done that myself. So let's talk about what I believe the solution is. Brand name alert. I believe the solution is a medication called Suboxone or buprenorphine naloxone would be the generic name of it. And um, it is generic now. So it's not just like there's just one drug company getting rich off of this. Like it's actually generic now. Here's how it works. So it's a, a partial agonist of the opiate receptors, but it's really, really strong. Um, think of it as kind of behaving like a carbon monoxide, right? Like if you inhale the carbon monoxide, it, it's so strong that it kicks off the oxygen. Um, same thing with, with this buprenorphine. It's really, really strong. It'll kick other opiates off the receptor, but it doesn't uh, do the full effect of the opiate receptor. So it's a really strong partial agonist. This has several benefits. One, it's extremely hard to overdose on when you take it. Uh, there, it's less euphoric. You'll hear some people say that it doesn't cause a euphoria. Um, I haven't tried it, but from what I read online, it does cause some level of, of euphoria, but, but significantly less than, you know, heroin or crushing up a pill and inhaling it. Okay. Um, the naloxone piece of it, it won't actually, so it we'll talk a little bit about how it can kick them into withdrawal in a second. That naloxone piece of it is actually inert when you take it under the tongue. That's more so you don't crush it and inject it and stuff. Then it, that naloxone piece of it becomes active. But, but that's Suboxone. And they've studied this. And it's not like it's just one study. Like they've done entire, like they've done, there's an entire Cochrane review on it. Okay. The number needed to treat for buprenorphine naloxone is two. Meaning that every two people that you can get started on this medication, long-term, they will still be in, in recovery, okay? As long as they are still taking the medicine long-term, they will not have relapsed into a life of drug addiction. Number needed to treat of two. Go to the NNT.com. This is your homework. Find me one other medication in all of medicine 
that is as effective as buprenorphine and naloxone. Find me something with an NNT of two or better. Any medication, go. Email me, Zach at emclerkship.com. I dare you. Um, aspirin for MI? No. Heparin? No. TPA? Even if you exclude the, the harms? No. Statins? No. Blood pressure control? No. You name it. This is one of the single best and most proven medications that we actually have access to. And it treats the number one cause of death of young adults in America. And it's generic and no one gives it. But okay, let's talk about the counter argument that you will hear, which is Dr. Olson, Dr. Olson, Zach, you're just replacing one drug for another. You're just replacing one drug for another. That's what you're all thinking. That's what everyone thinks. And so here's, here's kind of the counter argument to that, okay? What you are effectively doing when you start someone on, on a twice a day buprenorphine naloxone prescription, long term, with the, no, and for the record, with no intention of ever taking them off of it. This isn't something you wean. You are switching them from an opiate addiction and all the harms of opiate addiction with an opiate dependence. And you're making a switch there. You're conceding that maybe you'll never get them completely off opiates altogether because of the hijacked brain chemistry, but you are switching opiate addiction for opiate dependence. So now let's talk about the harms of opiate addiction. There's three categories. So you have use-related harms, the big one being opiate overdose. Again, uh, opiate overdose is the number one cause of death of young adults in America. Um, so you, you get rid of that harm. There's all the injection-related harms. So think abscesses, infections, hepatitis, H, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? The endocarditis, the septic emboli to the to brain and the lungs and all of that. So all those injection-related and infectious harms and things like that you get rid of. And then there's all the, what are called acquisition harms, which are the crime and the, the selling your body so you can get your next, you know, fix and things like that, okay? You, you switch out all those harms and you switch it out with a prescription that you take twice a day that has almost no euphoric effect, that's very safe, and that's generic, and you just take that long term. The difference, and you say, oh, I wish I could get them off completely. Well, you just, you, it doesn't work. So, sorry, I wish we could get, have everyone off all medicines completely too, but as of right now, it doesn't work. But effectively, um, what, what you are doing is, like, the difference between an opiate addiction and an opiate, you know, twice a day pill it's everything to these people. Like this is, this is life changing. Okay. It's the difference between having a family and like being dead in a McDonald's bathroom alone with a needle in your arm. It's the difference between, you know, having hobbies, like I'm really into gardening and being traked and pegged in a sniff because you got endocarditis and septic emboli to your brain. And now you have a stage four pressure ulcer. And oh yeah, since you're a drug addict and you didn't have insurance, you're in the, the state run institution. Um, and we all know what patients from there, what kind of condition uh, their life is. Um, it's the difference between having like a stable job as, you know, whatever, like a banker and being trafficked and homeless and in jail. So this, this difference is everything. And that's why I have no issue switching someone from a life of opiate addiction to a twice a day prescription that doesn't even give you euphoria, basically. All right. So then you're all thinking, great, I'm going to give everyone buprenorphine naloxone. How do I do it? Very easily. So just to be clear, you can give this medication to anyone in the emergency room. As long as you're, you know, med students, we don't, you don't prescribe medicines. But like, let's say you're, you, I mean, you can give this medic, medicine out. Good scenarios where you can give this. Um, the, the classic example is if someone's in opiate withdrawal. 
okay? So one of the things that we talked about earlier is how strong of a partial agonist the buprenorphine is. The patients, when you start them on this, have to be withdrawing because otherwise you're going to kick the opiates off and you're going to cause withdrawal because you're going to take up all those receptors with an opiate that's only half as half as like potent, okay? So you have to wait until they're already withdrawing, otherwise you'll cause them to go in withdrawal. This is a classic too, like um, tox case. You know, you have a patient who's on opiate thing and then they get some Suboxone off the street and they take that thinking that it's gonna make, give them kind of a fix and then they go into just floored withdrawal and they come in and saying, I just took Suboxone and it's this whole thing. But um, you wait until they're withdrawal, but you can treat the withdrawal with the Suboxone. So this is in contrast to kind of this opiate withdrawal cocktail that you'll see so it'll have like a little Ativan in it, some NSAIDs, you know, maybe some fluids, some Imodium for the diarrhea, the, the Zofran for the vomiting, maybe, you know, it, like that kind of stuff. Clonidine is something you'll see in there. Kind of this, again, kind of like we treat headaches with like a headache cocktail, kind of like an opiate withdrawal cocktail, only the opiate withdrawal cocktail doesn't work. Um, the buprenorphine naloxone would be very effective at treating opiate withdrawal. You're also protecting them from overdosing for the next whatever, 12 hours. I'm just throwing a number out there. And you're, you're showing them, hey, you can be off opiates and not be having these severe withdrawal symptoms because usually these patients are just terrified of getting dope sick. Okay. Um, so again, anyone can prescribe this in the emergency room. Uh, typically you wait, the rule is you wait until they have something called a COWS score, C-O-W-S. You can look this up on MD Calc or whatever of eight. And, um, and you can start them off on eight. I call it the rule of eight, a cow score of eight. You can give them eight milligrams of buprenorphine naloxone. You wait an hour and you can give them another eight milligrams of buprenorphine naloxone. Anyone can do this. You can do this for opiate withdrawal. You can actually prescribe this if you have something called an X waiver, which you may or may not have heard of, but you need like a special, a special prefix to your DEA number. So residents, typically you're not going to be able to do this because you don't, you have an institutional DEA number, not like your own individual one, but like as an attendings have their own individual DEA numbers. It's literally like five minutes of paperwork. It's free. There's no classes. You just fill out this thing saying like kind of what sort of institution you're in. And then, um, a month later or whatever, the DEA sends you a thing with your X waiver and you're allowed to have right now, I think it's 30 active prescriptions out, out in the community for Suboxone at any given time. Okay. So what you do then is you, you initiate the Suboxone in the ED for their withdrawal or, and you can send them home with a script for it as you're getting them what they call a warm handoff where you're, you're getting them set up with, with a long-term program. But that's how you do it. And, and it's really not that hard. This isn't like a hard medication to, to prescribe. But again, opiate overdose, you guys, is the number one cause of death in young adults under the age of 50. We're having somebody else frequently, like the social worker, giving them a piece of paper with some phone numbers on it that they don't read. And even if they called those phone numbers, half those resources don't work anyways. When we have a very effective proven medication, again, entire Cochrane review on this, you can look this up, with an NNT of two for long-term improvement and, and recovery and, you know, half of us don't even know how it works. It's, it's just, it's crazy to me, med students, residents, you don't, this is just something you're going to have to learn as you go through training. You always respect the attending, you you submit to the attending, but you don't have to be exactly like your attending. You can you can practice and treat these patients differently than your attending does. Um, there that we can we can fight this epidemic. There is a path forward, but it is through this medication. So that's what I got. Again, whew, I know this was probably controversial. 
your homework again was to send me an email, Zach at emclerkship.com, with any medication that you can find on the NNT.com that has an uh, NNT of less than two. Good luck. I found a non, I actually, I don't, I don't even know, did I find like epinephrine for anaphylaxis wasn't on there? Because I'm sure that's really good. One of the things that had an NNT of two was if you have a witness arrest in a young, otherwise healthy adult and you defibrillate them in five minutes or less, that's about an NNT of two. You know, there's very few things in medicine that are that effective. And you might, you might be interested just to see, you know, things like well, I won't, I won't say any particular drug, but things that you think are just total standard of care that you have to give out 200 times for it to even make any difference in mortality or, or morbidity or anything. Anyways, uh, Zach at emclerkship.com. I look forward to hearing from you. These patients need our help. And I'll just leave it at that. Until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, be sure to enjoy your shift.